We're in the final week of Ruth. We have journeyed through this book together, and it's been very exciting. You'll remember chapter one, Ruth and Naomi come home empty-handed from Moab to Bethlehem. Naomi's convinced that God has abandoned her. He is not displaying his hesed love, his hesed love. You remember what hesed love is? It is that loyal love, that self-sacrificial love that God shows to people, and therefore we show to each other. Naomi is convinced that God has abandoned his love for her, but the whole time God is orchestrating it so that Ruth runs into Boaz, and then Boaz begins protecting and providing for Ruth and Naomi. And then Ruth, last week, we had this kind of scandalous passage where Ruth goes to the threshing floor, and there's some sexual tension going on in that passage. And we learn that Boaz and Ruth want to get married, but there's someone else in the picture. Remember the boo guy, the guy that we don't want to marry Ruth? He has first dibs legally on redeeming Naomi and marrying Ruth. And so Boaz, being a man of God, has to go approach this guy, the boo guy that we don't like, and say, listen, here's the deal. If you want to redeem Naomi and you want to marry Ruth, it's your choice. We are going to finish our story today. I'm going to ask um, Bill to come forward. Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Boaz went to the gate of the town and sat down there. Soon the family redeemer, Boaz, had spoken about, um, soon the family redeemer, Boaz, had spoken about, came by. Boaz said, come over here and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Then Boaz took ten men of the town's elders and said, sit here. And they sat down. He said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has returned from the territory of Moab, is selling the portion of the field that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought you should um, inform you, um, buy it back in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you want to redeem it, do it. But If you do not want to redeem it, tell me so that I will know. Because there there isn't anyone other than you to redeem it, and I am next after you. Uh, He answered, I want to redeem it. Uh, Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from Naomi, you will acquire Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the deceased man, to perpetuate the man's name on his property. Amen. The word of God. Probably my favorite roller coaster is uh, Space Mountain. And it's not the wildest roller coaster, but it's nostalgic because I have ridden it, you know, since growing up in Florida, I've ridden it so many times. And I love how you get in that little rocket and then you strap in and then you go down this tube. And it looks like you're going much faster than you are because they have the lights coming at you and you feel like you're going 50 miles an hour, but in reality, you're just kind of inching forward. And then they jettison you out into the dark, and you see other rocket carts going by with their glow-in-the-dark paint and stickers. And you are really in the dark. You don't know where you're going. You're kind of blind. And you go left and right and up and down. And it's real quick. It's only like two or three minutes tops. But that's one of my favorite rides. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I was on Space Mountain once. And I guess someone dropped their phone or something happened on the ride and it broke but they stopped us in the middle of the ride. We weren't, you know, in the boarding place. We were out there on the track. And they stopped us, and they turned on all the lights. 
they turn on all the lights, and we got to see what space looked like. We got to see where we'd come from and where we were going. I, I love maps, so I'm kind of like mapping this out, like what's next, what's going to happen. And I love that moment because we got to see exactly what the plan was. But most of the time, that does not happen on Space Mountain. The chances are actually that that will never happen to you on Space Mountain and never happen to me again. Most of the time, you're in the dark, and you can't see where you're going. You don't know if you're turning left or right. You don't know if you're going to be jerked up or dropped down. You're in the dark. And our stories are a lot like that roller coaster. Our stories can be like that roller coaster in the dark. We don't know where God is taking us next. We don't know if he's going to take us up or down or left or right. We're just kind of along the ride in our story as we follow God. And if we're honest, that is both thrilling and terrifying, just like a real roller coaster. There's another ride that I also like at Tomorrowland at Disney World called the People Mover. And the People Mover is this ride that parents go on after lunch, hoping that they can get their kids to fall asleep. It's like the opposite of Space Mountain. It's really slow, and you just get in, and you just kind of cruise along. It's actually kind of boring. But part of that ride, you go through the dark as well. And you really can't see where you're going until you come out in the light again. Sometimes life is like a roller coaster, but I find a lot of times life is simply the people moving. It's ordinary. It seems to move slow, even it feels mundane and insignificant. You're just kind of inching along. But sometimes it's like you're on the people mover in the dark. You're moving along slowly, you're wondering what's going to happen next, and you can't see where you're going, or you can't see the story that God is writing. You wake up in the morning, you make your coffee, you make your breakfast, you hug your loved ones, you go to work, you go to school, you work hard, you study hard, you come home, you eat dinner, you might call some friends or spend time with friends, go to bed get up and do it the next day. Routine, ordinary, mundane. It doesn't feel quite significant, and yet at the same time, we don't know where God is taking us. It's a lot like the people mover. And sometimes we wonder, sometimes if we're honest, we wonder, God, are you in my story? I mean, sometimes it's thrilling and exciting, but most of the time, life is just routine. It's ordinary. It's mundane. And we begin to wonder, Lord, I'm following you faithfully. I'm loyal to you. I'm loving the people that you have put in my life. But where are you taking me? I'm following Jesus. How are you using me? I love you. Are you in my story? Does my story matter? Is it going somewhere? In the dark, you cannot see what God is doing in your story. You cannot perceive how your story fits into his story. But God is at work in your story. God is at work in your story. When you give your life to Jesus, God is committed to redeem your story and use your story in his story. And as we look at Ruth chapter 4, what we're going to see is that the God that is working in the darkness of this story is the same God that's working in your story. 
Today we're going to talk about your story and God's story. We're at the very height of this story in Ruth chapter 4. This is like the moment at the end of the rom-com where we're wondering what's going to happen. And Boaz waits at the city gate and he has to find this boo guy, the boo guy that we don't want to end up with Ruth. But because he's following God's law, he has to give him the right of first refusal to buy Naomi's land and to marry Ruth. And so the boo guy comes on the scene and Boaz engages him. And in the original language, it doesn't call him the boo guy, it calls him Mr. So-and-so. Like that's literally what the Hebrew says, Mr. So-and-so. And that's, what, that's important, we're going to get back to that. Boaz calls Mr. So-and-so and they get together. And then they go ahead and call the town elders together because those are the ones who make the legal decisions. And Boaz says, listen, Naomi's back from Moab and she has a piece of land that needs redemption. You are the closest relative. Will you redeem it? Now, we're not quite sure how the, how the legality of the land worked out. We think that either maybe Naomi pawned the land off or she owned the land but was renting the use of the land to someone else. But Boaz says, listen, Mr. So-and-so, do you want to buy the land or no? And now this is a pretty good deal for Mr. So-and-so. If he buys the land, he will have to take care of Naomi as her closest relative. But then once Naomi dies, he gets to use the land for whatever he wants. He can sell it and make some cash. It's not a bad deal. Do you want to buy it, Mr. So-and-so? And Mr. So-and-so says, yes, I will redeem the land. Well, Boaz has a little bit of a card up his sleeve, and he says, okay, on the day that you redeem the land, you will also have to take Ruth as your wife. Remember we talked about last week how in this culture, when someone died and didn't have any children, the wife would marry the closest relative in order to have a son for that deceased person. In God's land, land was really important. And having an heir, a son, to live on that land was incredibly important. And so Boaz says, listen, if you get Naomi and you get the land, you also have to marry Ruth, and you have to father a child with her, and then you have to raise that son and set him up to succeed on that piece of land in the name of Naomi's dead husband. Now, I know that's complicated, and that seems very foreign to our culture, but that was the norm in this culture. At this point, though, Mr. So-and-so backs out. Mr. So-and-so backs out of the deal. Look what it says in verse 6 through 8. The Redeemer replied, I can't redeem it myself, or I will ruin my inheritance. Take my right of redemption, because I can't redeem it. At an early, earlier period in Israel, a man removed his sandal and gave it to the other party in order to make any matter legally binding concerning the right of redemption or the exchange of property. This was the method of legally binding a transaction in Israel. So the redeemer removed his sandal and said to Boaz, buy back the property yourself. Now, it's really interesting what's going on here. Um, the storyteller is telling us really an exciting story. We're at this moment where it's the climax, and this guy, Mr. So-and-so, says, I'm going to buy the land back. They go, oh, no! No, 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 we want Boaz and Ruth to end together. We don't want her to end up with this chump. And at that very moment, Boaz pulls this card out of his sleeve and says, listen, well, if you take Naomi in the land, you've also got to take Ruth. 
And at that moment, he realizes it's not a very good deal for him because he will have to take care of Naomi. He will have to now marry Ruth, have a child with her, and then set that child up on the inherited land. In other words, it's going to cost him some cash. And when he sees that it's not an advantageous deal for him, but it's actually a costly deal, he says, I'm out. Now, God's law permits him to back out. But the storyteller wants us to see something about Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so is about self-preservation. In other words, he thinks my story moves forward as I look out for number one. My story is protected as I preserve myself. That's the very opposite of the character that we've seen in Boaz. Where Mr. So-and-so is watching out for number one, Boaz has been self-sacrificial. Boaz thinks that he wants to participate in God's story by showing God's love, by giving himself away. He's already given some of his, his, uh, his goods away to Ruth and Naomi, and we're meant to see this contrast between Mr. So-and-so, who's all about self-preservation, and Boaz, who says, I want to participate in God's story by taking care of someone else. In fact, that's the reason why the author in the story calls him Mr. So-and-so. It's like once he makes that decision to, to follow his own story and be about self-preservation, it's like he no longer matters. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way, do you see this man who refuses responsibility? He will have no further significance. He will remain unnamed and have no place in the record of God's glorious purposes. See, he doesn't just opt out of the deal. He opts out of showing love. He opts out of showing Hesed love to Ruth and Naomi. And that's the last we hear of him. He's no longer in participating in God's story. And I think as we talk about our story and God's story, this can be we can be so concerned about writing our story and God working in our story that we forget to check how we're participating in God's story. Let me say that again. We can be so concerned about writing our story and God working in our story that we forget to check how we're participating in his story. Mr. So-and-so has a wonderful opportunity to show love, but he opts out because it will cost him. Whereas Boaz sees this opportunity to reflect the love that God has given to him, to Ruth and Naomi. You know, we are encouraged by our culture to focus on our goals and success and advance ourselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. But how are you giving yourself away to participate in God's story? How are you showing God's love to the person next to you, even if it costs you? I mean, really, the high point of God's story is Jesus, who completely gave himself away. He showed sacrificial love to sinners, no matter the cost. And rather than receiving love, he gave love, even when it cost him his own life. See, we tend to look at people going, how can you help me advance my story? It's like last week. What, we, what can you give me? Not what can I give to you? But yet we see Boaz 
participating in God's story by sacrificing what is his own, by giving love to other people. Boaz is delighted to show Hesed love to Naomi and to Ruth, no matter what it costs him. And in front of the whole crowd, he does this. We go to verse 9. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are my witnesses today that I am buying from Naomi everything that belonged to Elimelech, Chilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, to perpetuate the deceased man's name on his property so that his name will not disappear among his relatives or from the gate of his hometown. You are my witnesses today. Can you imagine Naomi's relief at this moment? when the name of her husband is not going to die out and when the land is going to come back to her? Can you imagine Ruth's delight when she hears that Boaz is going to pay no matter the cost in order to marry her? Boaz is a man who has shown Hesed love in order to redeem Naomi, in order to redeem Ruth. And what's amazing is the whole town celebrates this love as well. In fact, they come around and declare this in the next verse. All the people who were at the city gate, including the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is entering your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built the house of Israel. May you be powerful in Ephrathah, and your name be well known in Bethlehem. May your house become like the house of Perez, the son Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this young woman. You know, it's interesting as we talk about our story and God's story, up until this point, Ruth has always been called Ruth the Moabite. Ruth, who's not ethnically part of God's people. Ruth, who's an outsider. But at this moment, the way that she's talked about changes. She's fully included, and she's just called Ruth, or the woman. Not Ruth the Moabite, not Ruth the outsider. But not only that, the people welcome her into God's story and say, may she become like one of the great women who have participated in God's story in the past, like Rachel and Leah, like Tamar. Might she be fully included in the story of the people of God? See, when we talk about being a blended family of diverse people, that's definitely part of our story. But it's really part of God's story. God has always been about including outsiders into his story. And through Jesus Christ, God fully includes diverse people into his story. And we see a little promo of that here in the Old Testament with Ruth, the Moabitess, who's an outsider. But yet this blessing is declared over her that she's fully included. And might she be like the great Israelite women of old? I think it's a good challenge for us as we think about our stories and participating in God's stories. Are you opening your story to followers of Jesus who are different than you? Are you opening your story to followers of Jesus who are different than you? Are you including them? as they're fully part of God's family. You know, we, we hope that our church continues to grow in people who look different from one another, who act different than one another, 
who vote differently than one another, who talk differently and eat differently. And part of writing God's story, part of participating in God's story together means that we treat each other with full inclusion. In other words, there's no second-tier citizens in the people of Jesus. God fully includes diverse people in his story, and we're called to open up our story to a diversity of followers of Jesus as well. But the other thing we learn from this blessing is that God uses broken people with broken stories in his story. The people use this blessing and talk about Rachel and Leah, and they talk about the the house that Perez and Tamar and Judah built, and that might this house that Ruth is building be blessed as well. The funny thing is, these are really broken stories. Like, Rachel and Leah is a really broken story of two sisters who had a love triangle with Jacob. And yet God used those broken people with broken stories to bring about Joseph, who would save the world from a famine, and then eventually bring the 12 tribes of Israel that would be the foundation of his people. God used the broken story of Rachel and Leah in his story. But not only that, Tamar is a really, really broken story, and sometime we'll preach on that, but Tamar tricks her father-in-law in the sleeping with her, in order to have a baby. It's a bizarre, broken story. But through that story, through that story, God changes her father-in-law, Judah. And he goes from being a self-preserving loner to a self-sacrificial leader. God uses broken people with broken stories in his story. In fact, Judah becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of Boaz our character in this story. And the stories are very broken, but be encouraged about your story if it's broken. God uses broken people with broken stories in his story. See, maybe you've had poor decisions in your past. Maybe you're ashamed of your past. Maybe you're struggling with sins right now. Maybe you consider yourself a broken person with a broken story. If you give your story to Jesus, God will redeem your broken story. God is in the business of redeeming broken people with broken stories and including them in his story. Maybe you've had addiction. Maybe you've had failure. Maybe you've wasted years. Maybe you're stuck in something right now that you can't get out of. Let me encourage you, give him your past. He will use it. Give him your pain. He will redeem your story. Give him your story, and he will include you in his story. He's already actually doing that if you know Jesus. You just can't see it. Because he's already doing that with broken stories in the scriptures and in the story of Ruth. See, our story comes to resolution. And Naomi, who has a broken story, doesn't even realize what God has done to redeem her. We come to this point where everything comes to a head. And Boaz and Ruth get married. Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. They're married. Evidently, the sexual tension is over. She becomes pregnant, and it says the Lord granted her conception. Now, I know that 
the Lord has often worked in ways in bringing uh, children to people who don't think they can have children. And that's an amazing thing. I think that's what the story is trying to communicate. But I also want you to think on a, about it on a deeper level. This is one of the only two times in this story that it says God actually intervenes and does something. The rest of the time, he's in the dark. This is one of the only two times that it says God did this. But the rest of the story, we're left thinking, what is God doing? Where is he taking them? What's going to happen next? The rest of the story, we just see these people. A farmer, two widows. And the rest of their story seems like happenstance and coincidences with uncertain ends. I think what we're meant to take from this is that most of the story is really ordinary and quite unspectacular. God seems to be in the dark, basically, from some of the first verses almost to the end, and we don't know what he's doing. It's just a story about widows and farmers in a little town. But they're showing loyal love to one another and to God by comforting one another, by following God's commands in farming, by being generous to the poor, by respecting sexual boundaries. The setting and the people and the storyline, if we really examine it, seems quite ordinary. And most of the time in that ordinary setting, it does not seem like God is doing anything. The people are average and their daily routines are mundane. In fact, we skip over a big part of the of the story, it just says that Ruth went and harvested for some weeks. Boring, mundane, ordinary. But we get a verse like this, and we get just enough to know that God has been working the entire time, even though the characters felt like they were in the dark. Be encouraged by that as you struggle to get up every morning and walk through the ordinary of life, the mundane of the routine. As you question, is God at work in my story? The answer is yes. God is at work in your story. I don't know how. I don't know where he's taking me. But I know that he's in work in the dark. And he moves this story forward very simply. It's nothing dramatic. It's nothing miraculous. It's just the story moving forward as people are loyal to God and they love their neighbor. And God uses the simplicity of those things to, to do what he's going to do. So I want to encourage you to trust that God is in the dark with you, guiding you, writing your story, even though you don't see him. In fact, that is the normal Christian life. That's what it means to walk by faith with God. You trust in him even though you don't know what's ahead even though you're wondering if he's actually working, and you just be faithful to him. You so show sacrificial love to your neighbor, and you rest in the fact that it's okay to be ordinary. It's okay to be ordinary. See, there's so much pressure on us to be extraordinary, right? There's so much pressure on us in this celebrity culture to be spectacular. We celebrate the celebrities' appearances on social media instead of the depth of their character in the routine of life. The book of Ruth says, no, God is present in the ordinary, 
in ordinary people doing ordinary things who are faithful and loyal to God and love their neighbor. And so as you're providing for your family, as you're caring for those in need, as you're loving the person next door to you, as you're discipling your kids, that matters and God is working through it even though you feel like it's ordinary. One of my favorite books that I read in seminary was written by a guy named D.A. Carson. You might have heard the name D.A. Carson. He's kind of a famous theologian. But he wrote this book about his father, Tom Carson, who was not famous. In fact, the book is called Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. And honestly, I don't remember much about the book besides the fact that it was just a really ordinary life that Tom Carson lived. Just an ordinary life. Like, he was a pastor at some times, and, and sometimes he wasn't. He had up and ups in his life, and he had downs in his life. I mean, one thing I remember is that he was uh, a pastor in Montreal, and during the winter, he would go and ice skate on this river over lunch. And that's kind of all I remember besides the fact that he would visit people when they were sick, and he'd go and pray for them. And then when his wife got Alzheimer's, he took care of her. It's just really ordinary. But yet he remained faithful to God and sacrificially loved his neighbors. And there's a freedom to be an ordinary you, but to be faithful to God and to walk with him and trust that even though you don't know what he's doing, he is doing something. The significance of your story isn't the number of followers you have on social media, but your faithfulness to Jesus. The power of your story isn't the look you portray, but the depth of your love for others. God does not have to do incredible things in order to use you to do something. It doesn't have to be incredible because he often works in the ordinary of life. And that frees us to simply be ordinary people who show extraordinary love. I mean, that's really what these people are in the story. They're ordinary people who show extraordinary love. And so you might even ask the question of yourself, how might God be writing his story in the ordinary parts of my story? How might he be working in things that I think are mundane and routine and unspectacular? What would it look like for me to embrace those parts of my life by faith and in those parts of my life remain faithful to him and love those closest to me? That's exactly how God works in this story. Naomi starts off empty-handed, and then we come to this beautiful picture in verse 14 where the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May his name, the name of the Lord, become well-known in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. Indeed, your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Naomi starts the, the book off, and she's empty-handed. And now she literally has a baby that she's bouncing on her lap. The heir of her husband's name. She's been redeemed, and her lap is full. I wonder if she ever asked herself the question, what if I had not been redeemed? What if I had not been redeemed? What if God had not shown his kindness to me? Boaz, 
Might I still be alone? Might I be unprotected? Might I not have this child in my lap? And I want to invite you to ask the same question. What would happen if God had not redeemed you? You would still be under God's wrath. You would still be unforgiven. You would not be free of your sin. You'd still be stuck in your addiction without the help of the Holy Spirit. You would still be weighed down by self-righteousness and trapped in anger and lost. And thank goodness that the Redeemer was willing to pay the price. What if Jesus had said it costs too much? What if Jesus had not gone to the cross on your behalf because the pain would be too much? No, Jesus did go to the cross, and he did redeem you, and he has filled you with his love and his grace and his Holy Spirit. You have been redeemed. And that is one of the reasons that we've called this book the gospel according to Ruth, because in this we really see a picture of the greatest redeemer, not Boaz, but Jesus Christ, who sacrificed his life for you in order to buy you back from sin in order to pay the price that you owe God, that you might become a child of God. Ephesians 1 says it this way, In him, Jesus, we have, say it with me, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And this is so important because so much of your story is going to remain unknown. You're going to be looking forward and going, it looks dark. I don't know where God is taking me. But don't forget in that moment that the most important part of your story has been taken care of. You're included in the gospel story through what Jesus has done for you, through the redemption that he has purchased for you. The most important part of your story is certain. Christ was put on the cross for you in order that you could be redeemed and fully forgiven for all your sins, past, present, and future. You may not see what God is up to in your story, but see his love for you clearly in the gospel story, through Jesus, the Redeemer. Sometimes our stories seem dark and you cannot see a way forward, but God has shined his light of love on you through Jesus. Jesus is in your story, and you are in the story of Jesus, the Redeemer. But as we end the book, I think we're called to even look bigger and beyond that. We're called to look beyond our story, because the story ends with this kind of weird genealogy. This weird genealogy where it says, now these are the family records of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, and Hezron fathered Ram, and Ram fathered Amminadab. And Aminadab followed Nishan, and Nishan fathered Salmon. We're checking our watches. Salmon fathered Boaz. Oh, there we go. And Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, king of Israel. Don't you remember from chapter 1, one of the first verses said, In the time of the judges? in the time of the judges where everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, in the time of the judges where there was no king in Israel who could help the people follow God, in the time when there was total chaos, 
God has actually been doing something so much bigger in this story than bringing Ruth and Boaz together and redeeming Naomi. He has been using this story to bring forth the king that Israel needed. And Boaz gets to be the great-grandfather of King David. They had no idea that God was doing something so grand and so beyond their perception. The story was much greater than them. It was pointing to something greater. But here's the thing. Even David isn't the point of the story. David's not the point of the story. Jesus is. Jesus is really the point of the story. If we go to the New Testament, and if you can hang with me through another genealogy, this is an introduction to who Jesus is. And it says, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Well, we know that. And then there's Solomon, and Rehoboam, and Asa, and Jotham, and Hezekiah, and Ammon, and all these people with stories. But then we keep going. Zerubbabel and Eliakim, and Zadok, and Achim, and Eliud, and Eleazar, and Mathan, and Jacob, and there's more people with stories that are leading to this. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Boaz and Ruth's story was really about King David, but King David's story even was leading to something so much greater the ultimate redeemer, Jesus, the Christ. Their stories weren't the point. And even all these people listed, they all had stories. But their stories weren't the point. The significance of all these stories is that they play out in a much bigger story. The story of Jesus, the redeemer. See, a thousand years after Ruth died, she didn't realize what was happening, but God had used her to bring about the Messiah. Ruth's story finds its grandest significance in the Jesus story. She gets to be part of the Jesus story. The one who loved, no matter what it cost them. The one who redeemed you by going to the cross on your behalf. The one who gathered not just Israelites or Moabites, but people from all nations to himself. See, listen, your story matters to God. God cares about your story, and he's writing a story for you, and he's using that story. But a thousand years after your death, a thousand years after your story has ended on this earth, you still get to be part of the story of Jesus Christ. You still get to be part of the story of King Jesus no matter what happens in your story on this earth. He will return, and he will make all things new, and he will judge the earth, and he will banish sin and brokenness, and you will no longer have to walk wondering what's next because Jesus Christ will live with you face to face, and the rest of your story will be lived out in full relationship with him. And his light and glory will illuminate everything. So look forward to that day with hope. 
And as you wrestle in the dark, wondering what's next, walk faithfully, live loyally, and love sacrificially. God is doing something in your story. But the bigger thing is that you get to be part of God's story about King Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. We worship you as the one who is risen from the dead and now seated on the throne. And we long for that day when you might come back and make all things new. We thank you that we get to be part of what you're doing. And we pray that as we walk through things, by faith, sometimes in the dark, that you would give us deep hope in who you are and your love for us. And all God's people said, would you stand and sing with us?